Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. After my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. (laughs) Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash getmore. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, a Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So this week we want to spend just a couple minutes at the top of the show with a quick plea to help us get the show in front of more people. Now, you guys and gals are the early adopter folks. You're like the people who stand in line to get the new Apple thingy, or you guys were swing dancing before swingers came out. You were doing paddleboard yoga before that was a thing. You were going... Wait, what is paddleboard yoga? See, exactly. (laughs) You still have time, everybody. Oh, my God. It's like doing yoga while on like a paddleboard on like a very smooth body of water. It seems like a pretty high barrier time-wise and, like, equipment-wise as far as a hobby goes, but it's nonetheless seems very relaxing. Um, you know, you, that's – so anyway, that's you guys. But we want to get the show in front of more people. I mean, you know, we want to, you know, double or triple the number of people who listen to the show, you know, by the time the first primary and caucuses come around. I think that's a good achievable goal. So we're going to give you some very micro assignments. They take 60 seconds or less, and they're completely free to help us get the show in front of more folks. So the first one, and we'll talk about one each week. The first one is to write a review on Stitcher. So you don't need to be a Stitcher user, although some of you are, in order to do this. But right now you can't stumble upon us on Stitcher. You have to search for us on Stitcher. And so if we have more reviews, people who are browsing news and politics or what have you will be able to find the show. So We'll put a link in the show notes, or you can go to Stitcher and just do a search for us. We'll appear, and then write a quick review. It'll take you less than a minute, and it'll be super awesome. So thanks. And then if you take a screenshot or photo and send it to us, and if you do all the micro assignments, we'll definitely give you a super shout-out. Uh, So this week's top lines. Uh, First, Republicans had an actual honest-to-goodness debate this week. It's a miracle. But will the polls move at all as a result? Uh, Then we'll talk about whether or not polling is doomed, um, coming on the heels of a Jill Lepore uh, article doing a deep dive into the polling industry. We're recording this today on Veterans Day, um, so we'll take a look at some polling on Iraq and Afghanistan vets and how they think um, the needs of veterans of those two war conflicts um, are being addressed. Uh, We'll also look at some data coming out of Deloitte that tries to debunk some myths about millennials working in the public sector. Uh, This week, Margie and I also went to Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service to kick off their 
Women in Politics event series. And so we're going to take a segment of the show um, from our recording of that panel. Our first live show. First live show. We had the whole, all of our gear set up there at Georgetown. It was pretty cool. Uh, And then last but not least, we get to the really important stuff, which is a discussion around polling about hairdos, in particular things like the man bun phenomenon and mustaches in Movember. (laughs) Excellent. Um, So the debate. So I have almost zero to contribute about the debate because I fell asleep before even all the candidates were introduced. And then I probably took a long time, but I I mean, that's how tired I was. I was immediately asleep by 9.01. The debate ran over, so it it went (laughs) until like 11.15. I would not have made it. Uh, but I, th- there was a funny tweet from Hugh Hewitt who said, I am ashamed to admit it, but I could watch four more hours of this. Wow. Because it was, it's so different than the last few debates, Margie. I, I have to say, if you, I, I, I wish you could go back in time and unwatch those earlier debates and then watch this one. Because <laughs> it was really good. That's good. That's good. So who do you think was the breakout winner? I don't think there was a breakout winner. Mm-hmm. So at the end of all of these debates, you know how every campaign has their staff go do the spin stuff where they try to make the case. Our candidate clearly won. And like most of the time, that's kind of baloney. Like mm-hmm. there's one person that won and there's nine people whose press secretaries are earning their paycheck because they're putting on the poker face and being like, oh, yeah, we totally won. Right. But they did not. Last night, I think every candidate's camp could reasonably make an argument that they did a good job. Now, yeah, I saw some clips that Bush did well, Rand Paul did well. I mean, everybody sort I think of had some, a turn. Some people did better than others, but in general, like even John Kasich. So he's somebody who, um, you know, we'll talk about in a minute, did not do particularly well in, say, the Luntz focus groups. And a lot of the buzz afterwards was that Kasich did not do a good job. But I think if you're John Kasich, you actually put on the kind of performance that you're like, this is me. Right. This is me at my best. You right. either like me or you don't like me. So, but, so the difference between who will like whom coming out of this debate, I don't think is going to be about, well, who got in the good slam or the good zinger or whatever. That it's, you'll just like whoever you liked. So even though this was a hugely important debate, mm-hmm. I don't know how much the polls will change as a result of it. Right. And there wasn't any news about the moderators particularly, which I guess is a good sign because certainly no, we've seen a lot yeah. about that. And the other thing that I saw, because I watched, I did manage to watch a little bit of coverage before the debate started. I didn't watch the undercard either. And um, that Christian Jindal had a, a bit of a little discussion, right? And that Christie in particular seemed to break out. I heard him on the news this morning. I mean, he had a good debate. He's not been doing very well in the polls. I mean, there was a New Jersey poll that showed that people want him to resign and stop running and just, you know, just kind of give it all up. Um, but he had, and he had a viral, but he's had a good couple weeks. He's very strong in these debates. He had a viral video that a lot of Democrats were reposting over the past week. And then he had a really strong undercard performance that, you know, there's room for one person to break out of the undercard usually, and it, I guess it was Christie. Yeah, I, I think it is still debatable whether he belonged in that undercard debate in the first place. I mean, they're doing it based on the polls. The numbers are what the numbers are, but we've talked plenty of times on the show about whether you should or shouldn't be using these national polls to make these decisions. I do think Christie benefited from being the big fish in the way lamer pond. Right. <laughs> um, and, and I think it was also good because... 
you could tell that Jindal was like, aha, now I have a moderate here that I can like really go after right. and prove that I'm the true conservative. But he did the same against Lindsey Graham in a previous debate. But Christie's like a bigger fish. Yeah. Like it's kind of, it's more like he's punching up right, this right. time. And Christie was just like, I'm totally uninterested in you. I know. He really you handled that do quite whatever well. you want, Bobby And Jindal. Santorum I'm shouted. I mean, there was actually quite a bit more, you know. The, the earlier debate had more like, it was it had like weird moments, but it, it the way that the moderators treated it, I think, did foreshadow a more substantive debate to come. So sometimes, you know, you can ask questions in these debates like, what would you do about taxes? Well, guess what? Ten Republicans out of ten Republicans are going to say, I would cut taxes. Taxes are too right. high in America. And you've learned nothing and the debate has gone nowhere. They structured the questions in this debate to be like, what is the highest amount of taxation? Like, what's the highest tax rate? a person should have to pay? And what's the lowest tax rate a person should have to pay? Mm-hmm. And so then you actually got to hear differences, mm. like Rick Santorum saying, I want a 20% flat tax, or I, you know, or Mike Huckabee saying, I want a fair tax, I want a consumption tax. And so, you know, that, that everybody got to kind of, you could see the differences beyond just, I want to cut taxes. Right. Which was helpful. And so the same thing happened in the, in the later mm-hmm. debate, too, that you actually had Marco Rubio having to describe his tax policy, which I think the way it works is it gives you credits. It, you know, it, There's a family tax credit. Mm-hmm. It's, he's framed it as this pro-family. If you're raising children, you get more tax relief. And then you have Rand Paul making a more libertarian argument like, hey, the government shouldn't be in the business of rewarding or punishing people because they choose or choose not to have children. Mm-hmm. So it's actually government putting its thumb on the scale of your personal life choices about your family, mm-hmm. that's like a valuable debate. Right. It's, that's an, and that's an inside the family debate, right? right. That's like a and, – and that's what I've long thought is needed on the right to begin sifting through this field is not like let's argue over did Ben Carson stab a guy – no, but I do want to argue about that. <laughs> <laughs> or like, what do they think about? Sorry, I'm raising my hand. Is that one of the hand raising questions? Yes, me. I would like that. <laughs> Did you stab him? Everybody, everybody here who's running, like, there are now actually multiple presidential candidates who have stabbed a guy. Apparently, remember Jim Webb was <laughs> yes. like, "I killed a guy. I killed a man." I know. I mean, that just reminds people. How, you know, it, I mean, part of the reason some of these debates have been so crazy a word we're going to bring up again later um, is because there's just so many people it's hard to break out and that's you know that's not the fault of the moderators or even the candidates it's just you have this many candidates they just need a a way to to shine and sometimes that means just you know saying doing something a little outrageous and so um, so it's interesting that this debate I mean there were conversations about immigration I guess I did gather a little bit of coverage in my small snippets today but there was a debate over immigration a debate over um, whether or not we're isolationists that include Rand Paul. So there was a little bit more of this policy debate, which I think yeah, was really good. not all Republicans agree on what you should do about folks who are undocumented immigrants here right. in the U.S. Not all Republicans agree about what we should be doing in Syria or doing about ISIS. And yeah. so finally having a debate that's about that stuff instead of, and again, I, I love Jeb Bush, but like you should apologize to my wife for being mean or you're not right. doing so well. Your polls are kind of bad, Rand Paul. Like, it, right. you know, it was, and I wonder, you know, we've long talked about the fact that Donald Trump has really high name ID, that he's in the top of the headlines, and does that help him? I actually don't think Donald Trump was in the top three most interesting exchanges or headlines coming out of this debate. 
Does that help or hurt him? Yeah. Well, according to the post-debate poll at Time magazine, which means nothing. It means nothing. There are. It is an N of 22,000, and it just is useless. Uh, 43% of people said Donald Trump won the debate. So 19% said Rand Paul more than Marco Rubio. Ben Carson, 4%. Did Ben Carson have a policy moment, or is he just trying to no, keep a low profile? Ben Carson didn't have a policy moment. <laughs> At all. He did get asked to describe his tax plan. And it was one of those things where if you don't like Ben Carson and you don't get why he's at the top of the polls, you're probably still really confused. But if you like Ben Carson, you probably liked his answer. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, that's why I, I wonder, even though this was a really cool debate with a lot of really valuable discussion, I don't know if... But maybe the polls will change because my old theory was that once we had the first debate, Donald Trump would fade because we would suddenly be in the substantive phase of the campaign. Right. And that did not happen. That was a failure of a prediction. So dare I make that prediction again, (laughs) that now that we've had a substantive debate and we're in this more policy-focused chunk of the campaign, if that's what this debate means— could dispel the end for Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think in the end, this we'll see. I don't know what the numbers are in terms of viewership, but I think this is a good outcome. I'm not sure it helps anyone except for maybe Rubio, who's had this kind of slow and steady tortoise, you know, mode where just having us mailing in a, a turning in a very strong performance every single time he just gets a gradual gradual boost and so does he continue i think aside from that i'm not sure we're going to see a whole lot of movement it sounds like um it's funny because one of my colleagues here a republican rory cooper i asked him yesterday i'm like what do you think is going to happen he's like i think it's going to be a lot of substantive questions because the moderators are going to want to make be you know as complete opposite from the cnbc debate as possible and i'm thinking like hey man it's not the spin room like who's gonna like you you know, slug somebody like that's what I want to know. You know? <laughs> like, but he was right because it really was. I mean, I think that's I mean, it goes to show actually that Fox has now put on, at least from the Republican side, the two best received debates. So yep. that's good, too. Um, and and I, I think if I was a Democrat, there are a handful of questions I would have been like, mm, that's a little bit of a softball. Like you threw that one right over the middle of the plate. But right. generally, you know, a question like, hey. There are a lot of people who think that the minimum wage should be raised to $15 an hour. Do you agree or disagree? Like, that's not a mean or combative or nasty question. It's not the moderators trying to prove how smart they are. Um, And it's also not a softball. It's a simple question, but it's not, like, an easy question. That that it's possible to ask substantive, tough questions that are not, like, why do you think that people should be paid no money to do work? Why are you such a meanie <laughs> and a horrible human being? Um, right. The the uh, interestingly, the only really kind of like nasty moment, and people were expecting Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush to have a moment, and it seems like that did not occur. Right. Um, the only moment to me that I was like, "Are you freaking kidding me?" Was at one point Donald Trump shouts down that Carly Fiorina was trying to break in, and he goes, like something like, "I wish she would stop interrupting, make oh, her stop I did interrupting," see that. I did and hear I was that. like. Bro, why? Nope, no, you didn't. I mean, I'm not. Our, I'm already not a Donald Trump fan, but yeah. that was my like so freaking sexist alarm like went off big time in my head. Yeah, that that came up filled in me with anger. Yeah, it came up in the Luntz focus groups. So Luntz did a focus group. It was on Megyn Kelly's show, and the thing, well, that came up. People talked about that moment. And the other thing that came up was how. Um, 
how badly Kasich did because they were reacting to, you know, some of his supposedly more moderate positions um, and uh, like his support for the bank bailout. And uh, Luntz said it was the worst reaction he'd ever tested in a Republican debate since 1996. Which I, really? I, I, I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. How's well, I, I know, I'm also going to call a little bit of baloney. Frank, we love you. <laughs> we love you here at the pollsters. But like the last debate, he said, oh, I just tested something on the dials and it was the highest thing. Highest reading on my dials I've ever seen. So maybe he has like and sort of a Trumpian. Like, oh, this is the lowest thing I've ever seen for hyperbole. Is um, this really the highest of the lowest? Like, are we? Did we just happen group. to be in this very lucky moment in the last two weeks where like voters are pushing those dials to the extremes? Who knows? But I'm 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 registering my official suspicion. Well, so but some of the <laughs> words that people said are boring, tiring, irritating, finish. Those are some of the words that people use to describe Kasich. And he's always had this more moderate path. And it's either going to work or it's not going to work. I mean, as far as the, the tiring, I don't know if that refers to how he looks or how, you know, what he sounds like. But um, but it was interesting. I mean, someone said, I mean, he, you know, maybe Frank was in, influenced by this line. Some uh, respondent said that was the most liberal comment I have ever heard on a Republican debate stage. I mean, it's almost that that kind of lodged into his head and sort of came out as like, this is the worst testing moment ever. Who knows? Um, Well, if you take a look, so uh, Monmouth put out a poll. I believe this is of South Carolina Republican voters. Um, And they were taking a look at the favorables and unfavorables of the different candidates and where where they stand. Um, Because we focus a lot on Iowa and New Hampshire, but those are not the only two states. Um, This is going to be a race that's going to go on for a while. And in South Carolina, we've talked in the last couple of weeks about how Jeb Bush is struggling there. His net favorables are are negative. Yeah. Um, 41% favorable, 43% unfavorable. That's a tw- that's a huge decline. He used to be plus 20. 52% favorable, 32% unfavorable. That's a huge drop know, that's off a for big him problem. in South Carolina. And Lindsey Graham, why is he net unfavorable in South Carolina? I well, that's I'm I am astonished by that as well. That to me was very surprising. I think yeah. He, he, that's the, it's his state. That's it's his, his state. home state. Um, but maybe in the context of running for president do they think he's you know that because the question is worded i'm going to read you the names of a few people who are running for president in 2016 like maybe they like him as senator but they say you should just stay there i don't know um, but so anyway yeah i mean that i guess the candidates haven't fully moved to south carolina but there are definitely some warning signs because bush and graham in particular bush from neighboring florida i know he doesn't have sort of the evangelical lockup per se but still he's from a nearby ish state um, and uh, Graham actually from there, if they're not doing well, that's going to be problematic for them. And in the debate last night, you know, Jeb Bush didn't have bad moments. He had fine moments. He had flashes of like, oh, this is the guy that we all thought could maybe be a front runner. But I don't know if it was enough. Um, and so, again, I'm. I'm uncertain if this debate will really move the polls in a serious way at all. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. And we're going to talk about the Democratic primary more next week because there's a Democratic debate on Saturday. So there'll be 
all kinds By of stuff. By the way, can we just talk about how the Democratic events are on like Friday and Saturday nights? I don't know what that is. Like, I, certainly that was, I mean, it's all the same to me. I have two young children. Debbie Friday Wasserman night, Schultz, what are you doing? Friday night, Saturday night, Monday night, four o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock at night. It's all the same. <laughs> <laughs> they have all blended in together into one sort of endless night. Um, and, you know, so it's totally fine. Um, but, you know, when we had Neil Newhouse on last week, he reminded us that, you know, there's lots of months left. Yep. There's it's, it's a while before any voting happens. Um, all kinds of things can change. And we talked to Walmart moms and a lot of those folks. We, we made sure they weren't strongly committed folks, but they were considering all kinds of people. But if you look at this is the CNN ORC poll in Iowa, you see an increase in the number of people who say that they've definitely decided. So while it's not there are still majorities who have not definitely decided, there's still an increase in the percent who say I've definitely decided on both the Democratic side and the Republican side. Among Republicans in August, 15% had definitely decided now it's over a quarter, 27%. Still not that high. On the Democratic side, it was about a third in August. Now it's 40%. So on both sides uh, of the aisle, you see at least the early voting places, people are kind of beginning to coalesce just a little bit. So we'll see how that all goes. Last but not least on the 2016 beat, um, the Washington Post did a pretty interesting uh, series of charts. I believe this is from the McClatchy poll. Yes. Um, where they did a whole bunch of different ballot matchups. Bush versus Clinton. Bush versus Sanders. Carson versus Clinton. Carson versus Sanders. Cruz versus Clinton. Cruz versus Sanders. You know, they do the whole... That would actually be a really unpleasant poll to take, I would I think. know. Um, but nonetheless, what they did is... You know, that's what's hard is sometimes we'll sit here in the studio and we're trying to explain these different ballot tests and we've got all these papers in front of us and we're shuffling through them like, what does this say? Right. And this Washington Post piece that we'll link in the show notes, um, it basically shows crosstabs as just circles. Right. So you don't get hung up on, was it 43 versus 47 or... It's just colored circles. And they're bigger or they're smaller. So you don't need to sweat the details, which you certainly don't need to sweat at this point anyway. No, this is like idiot-proof crosstabs. (laughs) And so um, when you you take a look, what it helps you do too is it helps you very easily visualize or very easily see who does well... Like, what are the matchups that are the most advantageous to Republicans or Democrats among different um, different demographic groups? So, for instance, Bernie Sanders does better against George Bush than Clinton. Yes. Um, so Sanders is the tougher matchup for Bush. Mm-hmm. But then against Carson among independents, Clinton barely beats Ben Carson among independents. But then Carson, like, crushes Sanders. Yep. Among independents, you know, so you can see all of these weird contours to the race about why is it that independents would seem to prefer Sanders to Clinton when Bush is the opponent, but prefer Sand or prefer Clinton to Sanders when Carson is the opponent. Uh, yeah, no, it's really it's very interesting. And then you know, one of the other, I mean, the Carson matchup is where you see a lot more differences than some of these other. Carson matchups. and Rubio are the two that that sort of. Bush, Cruz, Fiorina are all fairly similar in how they match up. Yeah. Um, you can take a look at, say, women. You know, Fiorina does not actually do better with women, better with women against Clinton than against Sanders. Yeah. Like, it's not – or it's – the, Certain demographic breaks, actually, you can see that they don't actually matter at all. Right. Um, and, you know, Clinton and Sanders, while they 
are in different places in the primary. Clinton has rebounded considerably in the primary. She's up quite a bit in the primary. In these head-to-heads in the general, there are only a few matchups where you see a really big difference. You see a little bit of difference, but not a massive difference between how Clinton and Sanders perform. And that says something about Sanders and Clinton. It also says something about sort of our electorate. We have a polarized electorate where we have a lot of people have already kind of figured out where they're going to be, regardless of what names we put in here. You know, any kind of name, they you know still say, I'm, I'm with so-and-so. I'm with so-and-so. Um, but among women, Clinton be- crushes Sanders. But, I mean, Clinton crushes Carson. <laughs> Stop with all these names. But uh, among women, Carson beats Sanders. So that's one place where there's a real difference between the outcome, Clinton versus Sanders. So that's true among independents and, versus Carson. And that's true among women versus Carson. Um, there aren't that many places. Yeah, Rubio um, versus Clinton versus Sanders among independents. There's a bit of a difference. But there aren't that many of these head-to-heads where there's a real difference between how Clinton and Sanders do. I mean, I guess there's a little bit of – there's difference the, the among white, white voters. Yeah, white, non-white was an interesting divide. So yeah. we've talked a little bit about how in the Democratic primary, you know, Hillary Clinton does very well among non-white Democratic voters, while Bernie Sanders has struggled a little bit on that front. Um, and here, when you look at the general election matchups – among non-white voters, Hillary Clinton does better against every one of the Republicans than Bernie Sanders. But when you look at just white voters, Bernie Sanders actually wins among white voters yeah. against Trump, Fiorina, Cruz, and Bush. But he loses pretty sizably among uh, by to Carson and a little bit to Rubio, which you know that's I think fascinating because. Republicans are typically, you know, Republicans win white voters, but they lose non-white voters by huge margins. Right. And so, um, but the idea that Bernie Sanders is able to actually beat a bunch of these Republicans among, among white, white voters, voters that's, then that's the, interesting. Then the game is up, right? And the other thing, too, is this shows the margin. This is D minus R, R minus D. So, the, you know, if you have higher don't knows, which you may have with some of these groups, that wouldn't, that's, show, up that wouldn't show up in the circle. Um, but anyway, and this is all just from one batch of polls. It's not from sort of everything we've ever seen. And, of course, these will change a billion times before we get to the general election or figure out who these who our candidates are going to be. But it's still really cool. And it is, a, as we said, a cool way of thinking about the demographics as opposed to just, you know, having to run tables or study the tables very closely. Uh, and last but not least on the 2016 beat, so Marist has some interesting stuff out today about how people describe the presidential race. Um, and apparently uh, the word crazy tops the list. If you ask people, which one word would you use to describe the 2016 campaign for president? The options were crazy, mean-spirited, passionate, traditional, informative, (laughs) principled, and unsure. Informative didn't win, I'm afraid. Uh, Yeah, but this is a little, I mean, I would say crazy too. Yeah. This is crazy. It is genuinely. They should have had exciting in here. That would have been. Something that's positive. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but at any rate, a plurality, and it's across every single demographic group. So, I mean, across every party grouping. So who says that there can't be bipartisan opinions? Because there is certainly one shared partisan experience here that this election is crazy. So that's true whether you're a strong Democrat or a strong Republican. Uh, One other note in last night's Republican debate, there was a notable absence of discussion of stuff that falls into the bucket of the social issues. Um, There was not really a discussion of things like gay rights. There was not really a discussion of stuff like abortion. 
um, these issues were sort of set aside in favor of talking about economic issues and foreign policy issues. Um, and that's somewhat in line with where voters are at in terms of what they hope the election is about. Um, in this Marist poll, they asked people, do you hope the election is more about foreign policy issues like ISIS and terrorism? domestic issues like the economy, healthcare, roads and bridges, or social issues like abortion, same-sex marriage, single digits for same-sex marriage and abortion. Like same uh, that that only 7% of Democrats, 8% of Republicans, 6% of independents want this to be an election about social issues. And you know what's interesting about this is that first of all, the domestic issue it doesn't just say domestic issues. It uh, says, you know, economy and healthcare, which are big, but also roads and bridges, which, you know, is not something that, while incredibly important and people experience it, it's not typically what drives a national presidential election. While abortion and gay marriage are just in the news just constantly all day long. And so even the examples here, you would think might, you know, put their finger on the scale for social issues. But it's in single digits for strong Democrats and for strong Republicans. There's no difference. We're talking about a difference between 5 and 9%. I mean, basically no difference. And I remember Fox News had a poll about this that showed 7% said they cared about social issues. And you would never know that by watching the coverage and oh. what people think this election is going to be about or what they think which candidates have advantages or disadvantages. I mean, look, you know, the fact that Huckabee and Santorum are, you know, continue to be sort of not rising to the top is is a sign that social issues are not driving even the Republican side. But, you know, this is I mean, remember this number, folks, because I, I think it's hugely important, especially when we see these things that are very different from what reporters want to make this election about or think this election may be about. Well, now we're going to take a look at a, a story that I would encourage everybody, if you've got the time for something that's approaching a long read, um, Jill Lepore has written a phenomenal story in The New Yorker that goes through uh, this big question that we try to tackle on the show all the time of what the heck is going on with the polls? Why do they seem to be wrong more often? Um, is this real? What's driving it? And the way she lays out the story is she kind of goes through the history of... Um, the history of the polling industry. Which was very cool. I didn't know a lot of that stuff. I mean, yeah, back to like the original sin, the readers, uh, the, the Literary Digest poll where they yeah. got it wrong and then Literary Digest has to close two or three years later. You've got, um, you know, Alf Landon yeah. predicted that he's going to win. Yeah. Nope. Um, Dewey defeats Truman. It sort of walks through all of the times in the past where... Uh, the polling industry has failed, and it's had to retool, and it's yeah. had to come back. And, and George Gallup getting a start because he wanted to measure his mother-in-law's chances of winning an election. Yeah. Which I just think is <laughs> fascinating, right? I mean, uh, and necessity, necessity being the mother of invention and all. And and I think one of the things that is is brought up about, you know, w- what is happening that is making the polls less right um, is – is there are there just more polls out there? Have we, do we have more quantity and less quality? Um, and uh, Ariel Edwards Levy has you know tweeted that polls as of November second, Pollster has tracked 258 polls, uh, or po- Pollster tracked 258 polls across the entire 2012 Republican primary, whole primary, 258 polls. Yeah, they're already up to 198. It's not even Thanksgiving. Right. And they're not including, like, the Insta polls or any of that stuff. These right. are, like, the quote-unquote legitimate po- polls. So we have this huge increase in the volume of polling. We have polling becoming so central to media coverage. 
which we kind of love because it's what we do. Yeah, and it that's draws great. interest in what we talk Hand about. Hand raiser. Show. That's good with me. I like that. As a reminder, <laughs> fill out your review on Stitcher. It'll just take you a minute. That's right. Um, but I would encourage everybody, if you want to understand a lot about where polling has come from and where polling is going, in the piece, she also talks to folks that work in the you know the big data, data science world um, to sort of uncover uh, where where polling might be headed and how we can start using you know these quote unquote analytics surveys to better understand um, things to better understand what an electorate might look like and to sample them appropriately. I mean, here's the other thing about this story, and I think that it's it's you know hugely important read. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there, context and tidbits and so on. And she talks to all kinds of you know Bill McIntyre and you know other folks, you know people who worked at YouGov and Knowledge Networks, folks that we've studied and know um, who do solid work. I, I a couple things troubled me. One, she focuses sort of the her target on polling being the, you know, polls that predict the outcome. So, I mean, she even says here, like, oh, there's lots of surveys that ask people about their medical conditions and there's other kinds of stuff. But let's talk about polls in terms of the ones that say so-and-so is going to win. And for pollsters who do this for a living, that's just such a small part of what we think that's of. That's the when... least interesting question on a survey. Right, because it's going to change. And, you know, ultimately you're talking, you know, pe- people spend a lot of time hand-wringing over a poll. You know, does the poll show one person up or one person down by a point or two or three months out or week, even weeks out of an election that's going to have a zillion twists and turns when really polling has a, a broader use of figuring out what a campaign should say, what a candidate should say, what people know, what they don't know, um, what moves them. Them, what messages work with them. So much of that stuff is not released. We don't get to talk about that on the show because people don't release that stuff. That's the stuff that they hold back and use for their own internal purposes. That's not what you see in media polls. So she, you know, sort of looking at kind of the worst of polling, which is the, you know, quickie head-to-head hit, and some of it very uneven and some of it very good, and using that as kind of a proxy for the whole industry, which I think is not, you know... Right. It's not it is 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 not sort of looking at the breadth of what it, its utility, right? And I think part of the tendency to focus so much on that when people are writing stories about the accuracy of polling is that's one of the few questions we ask that you can check and right. see if we were right. If I do a survey where I ask Americans what is your favorite color and I find that 40% of Americans say blue, you'll never be able to prove me wrong on that. Right. Um whereas if I do a survey two or three days before the Iowa caucuses, and I say, who are you going to vote for? And I have Ted Cruz at 25%, and he comes in at 5%. Yeah. I've been proven wrong. Right. So the horse race is the one of the few times when the polls— In any kind of research. In really. any kind of research. When, when like— there is a day of reckoning. There is yep. a day of accountability. Yeah. And so people spend a lot of time thinking of that, about that. I mean, the New York Times had a piece about this, about international polls being off, which they weren't in Canada. Nobody seems to bring that up because that's inconvenient. But um, <laughs> but they were in the U.K. and Israel. And so people are like sort of now worrying in advance, you know, yeah. uh, about what's going to happen. I mean, the other thing that this story um, – also goes into, which is the history of the notion of whether we we should or can 
even investigate public opinion. And, you know, I know a lot of folks are listening. That's what they do, right? This is what we do. But there are people who, and it's a legitimate conversation, like, can you even estimate public opinion because you are asking people about things they don't know anything about? They, you're giving them language that they don't use. You're, you, you know, you're describing things in a way that if you use one type of word or another type of word, you're going to change the outcome. So are you really measuring public opinion? Are you shaping it? Are you giving people ideas they didn't actually have before? And I think there's a tendency in this story to suggest that, you know, you, you can't really figure out what public opinion is or you're asking people to evaluate things they don't have anything about. And, and so maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe you're not helping democracy, but you're actually cheapening it or coarsening it in some way. And, you know, I would argue that that's not the case at all, that you have a lot of cases where you'd have a conventional wisdom that would be wrong if it wasn't for research. And someone in the story gives the example of gay marriage, you know, that moved because the polling kept showing all this movement. So then any kind of, you know, there's no way conventional wisdom would have moved that quickly. So polling helped show that the actual public attitudes were moving very quickly. There's a great quote in the article. I think I tweeted out just this quote all by itself, which was, there are all kinds of problems with public opinion research as done by surveys, but a lot of the alternatives are worse. Yes. Um, That a lot of what we would have would be self-serving stories about what's good for people. Um, If there's a poll, you have a check. You know, we can't just come on this show and be like, well... Everyone cares about social issues. Gosh, everyone cares about social (laughs) issues. It's really what's going to drive this election. Because we come in and we have data and we can say, look, this data might not be perfect, but it's it's data. Right. It doesn't matter. It's not just for making things up. Right, exactly. Um, But the the interesting point that I found, another one that I thought was was fascinating is, you know, she talks about data science um, as a way to try to, you know, quickly gauge what people are thinking on issues. Um, and she was talking to folks at something I think called CrowdPack, where they, they basically help people figure out who stands where on what issues and where are people getting donations and um, to sort of like, you know, blast out to people like, hey, your member of Congress just voted this way on this issue. And she poses the kind of question that if all of a sudden, you know, let's say you believe that you oppose that she creates the, the fictional Smeadwell-Nutley Act. Cute. She says, let's say you oppose it. You think it's terrible policy, but you find out that 79% of your constituents support it. If you vote for it, a bunch of them will donate to your campaign. But you think it's really bad policy. Should you be in the business of representing your constituents by voting the way you think is best, or is your job to vote the way they would want you to? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a question that is at the core of public opinion polling in a democracy or in a republic. It's at the core of democracy, period. And that's not polling's fault. That's, you know, that's not a polling problem. Don't hate us. It's that's the nature of the of, you know, that's a challenge of the job. That's a question for, you know, someone who is is elected to represent a constituency. And if there was no public opinion poll, there would be, you know, letters to their office or people picketing in front of the office or, you know, editorials or in their local paper or people coming up to the candidate at the grocery store or what have you. And those may or may not be good measures, but that would be a, you'd still have the same conflict, which is do you vote the way you think or you vote the way your district thinks. Mm -hmm. And then last but not least on this polling quality topic, uh, the New York Times has an article um, that's digging into some of these postmortems. You know, we had we talked last week about the show on the show about the Kentucky governor's race and how the polls were kind of off there and that increasingly, you know, we do have these instances where it's a high profile polling miss. 
Um, and the, the sort of end result of this New York Times article is that there's not going to be one answer that says, like, here's why all of these polls are wrong. That in right. each individual race and each individual instance, maybe in one place it's sampling error. Maybe in one place it's non-response bias. Maybe in one place it's because... Late-breaking something yeah, or hurting or what have you. That, that there's... You know, in in certain societies, certain countries, different people are going to be accessible different ways. That in the U.S. we still use phone polling, but in the U.K. they use lots of online. And who and, is online versus who has phones in different countries? Right. Like, we, there will not be like a unified theory of polling screw ups. Right. In Canada, again, where they called it right, they use all kinds of different methodologies, and they all seem to point to a liberal, you know, a, a liberal win. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like one outlet, one type of methodology. Yeah. One and in, in that instance, part of why people were like. Oh, we're so surprised that the liberals wound up getting a majority on their own was because of the seat projection right. errors, not that the polls themselves were bad, right. Right. but that seat projections, people didn't necessarily think it was going to shake out the way that it did. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, always here to cover a little bit of the methodology fun, but it just it was nice to see the stuff, the, the really nerdy stuff we talk about on the show a lot, getting a lot of love and more mainstream press this week. I know, I know. I mean, some of it's definitely, um, you know, it, polls are always fun to kind of kick around. And so with this increased coverage of polls, there's also going to be an increased coverage of the, you know, downside or hand-wringing or worrying about polls. I mean, one other thing, too, about the government piece. Somebody told me, I spoke at a panel yesterday at Microsoft with Duke University, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said that a poll was wrong in a Latin American country. And it was because the pollsters, they were doing it in person, but they were driving around in government-sponsored cars. And so people uh, – there was a self-selection bias of who would talk to the interviewer in a government car. That <laughs> makes an awful lot of sense. So there's all kinds – so that's, you know, that's an answer you would not even think of. Who would even think of such a thing? So, um, uh, so there's all kinds of reasons that polls can be off. Uh, so today we're recording the show on November 11th, um, which is Veterans Day here in the U.S. Uh, and I w- wanted to just take a little bit of time. There's some interesting polling um, that the Washington Post and Kaiser Family Foundation conducted. It's a little bit old at this point. But given that there's been a lot of discussion recently about things like the Veterans Administration, um, y- you know, here in the U.S., uh, there have been uh, some, some scandals and sort of failings of the Veterans Administration lately to provide care for people who have served in the armed services. Um, wanted to just take a look at this poll and found a, a couple of interesting findings um, about how uh, how veterans think about the VA and and how they think the government is is doing for them. So again, this is a it's a national sample of 819 adults who served in Iraq or Afghanistan since September 11th, 2001. So this isn't all veterans. It's specifically veterans of more, like modern conflicts. That's that's smart to keep that separate. Um, so it's so it's we're not talking about the older veterans who are the ones that, you know, may really be the ones facing a lot of the, the VA issues. Right. Um, and this poll again was conducted in in 2000 in late 2013, so before this story had really broken into the media. Um, and what we found, what they found was that uh, you had 41% um, of these veterans they surveyed saying that they would rate the job the government is doing meeting the na- needs of the current generation of veterans, excellent or good. But a majority, 56%, said it's not so good or poor. Um, but then thinking about their own experiences, again, as younger veterans, 59% said that they had felt that the job the government was doing and meeting their needs was excellent or good. 
40% said not so good or poor, which this is a dynamic you see in a lot of yeah. polls. Like, how do you think American public schools are doing? Everybody says terrible. How do you think your schools are doing? Everybody says they're doing great. Yeah. Um, then they also said, how would you rate the job the Veterans Administration is doing to meet the needs of military veterans? Are they doing an excellent, good, or only fair or poor job? Here, the VA did not get very good marks. Um, 58% said they were doing only fair or poor. Um, and this is a question that um, Paul Rykoff of the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans Association, he's somebody that um, he talks about this a lot. The idea that the needs of veterans today are very different than the needs of somebody who served in, say, Korea, Korea mm-hmm. or um, the Vietnam War, that, mm-hmm. that just the, the types of injuries you get in mm-hmm. those conflicts are different. The residual effects of those conflicts um, mentally and physically are going to be different. Um, readjustment back into society after a deployment is going to be different. Right. And you're so, going to have fewer of your sort of colleagues and neighbors being part of the shared experience maybe than in earlier conflicts. Right. Um, and so in this poll, um, these these veterans were asked, relative to how it serves previous generation of veterans, how do you think the VA puts too much focus, not enough focus, or about the right amount of focus on the needs of veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, And half say about the right amount, but 44 percent say not enough, that the VA is not focused on the current generation of veterans um, in in the right way. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I have to say these numbers are actually a little bit better than I would have expected. Well, I wonder if you redid the poll now, two years later, Mm -hmm. having had all of these headlines break about the VA scandals, would the numbers be different? Right. Or would yeah. they be the same? Because so the, some of these are about personal experience. You know, right. just because a headline says something horrible is happening at a you know VA hospital on the other side of the country, does that affect your experience? Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't know. But good stuff. Um, so as you probably know, Kristen is our resident expert on millennials, and you can buy her book, The Selfie Vote, at theselfievote.com um, or any place where fine books about millennials are sold. And, um, and so there was some stuff in the Washington Post – Uh, This week, I guess it was kind of in response to a Washington Post story from a few months earlier saying it's hard for uh, government agencies to to get recruit millennials. They don't want government jobs. And then Deloitte um, did some work on this and. and then so they found some stuff. So what did they find? Uh, so I took a look at a lot of these uh, studies about millennials in the public sector when I was writing the book because I have a chapter where I talk about you know, in order for the public sector to recruit more young employees, they should borrow a few things from the private sector right. in terms of, hey, let people don't don't make free breakfast and bring your dogs to work. Well, that kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, OK, <laughs> dry cleaning, frivolous things, serve sushi in the cafeteria, but also that, um, you know, give retirement plans that aren't just defined benefit pensions, but are defined contributions and that are portable. Um, let people get promoted based on the quality of their work, not just, well, you know, but in seat time, like how long have you been at your desk? Because millennials don't like that stuff. Um, So Deloitte went in and they were trying to challenge some assumptions. And this report, I feel like it it tackles, of the four findings that it talks about, I think three of them are kind of straw men. So one, um, the first thing they find, they, they tackled the myth that younger people have higher turnover rates than older generations in government jobs. And they find that that's not really the case, um, that, you know, the turnover rate was relatively low. I have not... Um, actually seen people arguing that the turnover rate in government jobs is higher. That overall, the turnover rate 
that young people jump from job to job a lot, but also because but the economy is bad for them, they're also less likely to move, particularly if they're in a stable job like a government Well, and job. if you don't have kids and you're not sort of as reliant on, you don't have like that sort of infrastructure of your household set up in a certain way and, you know, you're not relying on benefits as much. I mean, then it just seems, and you're figuring out what you want to do. I mean, it just makes sense that millennials would have higher turnover. I mean, it doesn't mean that, you know, they're just sort of reckless millennials out doing crazy things. I mean, it just seems like it makes sense given <laughs> Man the Man buns, though. That's the reckless and crazy things. We will get to that in a moment. I don't want to lose my Tacoma Park audience by uh, criticizing yeah. the man bun. But, um, but I mean, that just doesn't make – I mean, it just makes sense that that's going to have a different yeah, kind well, of career it, trajectory. It, 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 so the th- of the four myths that they're debunking, three of them are around the question of millennials who are already in government jobs and how they behave – once they have the job, right. do they leave quickly? Do they hate their job? And they find that, no, actually, millennials who are working for the government don't really hate it more than other people who are working for the government and don't leave more often than other people who are working for the government. Right. So three of these four myths are things that I'm like, well, that's never really been the argument that I've heard. The fourth one is the argument that I've heard, which is that it is harder to recruit young people to work for the government because they find aspects of public sector life, right. which is different. I, I differentiate that from public service, that public sector life yeah. is less appealing. And what they find here is they say, this is the quote from the article, the study says there's no conclusive answer to this right now. Is it harder to recruit millennials than previous generations? Right. That seems like the big question, like not to compare millennials to current 50-year-olds, yeah, but how like, do millennials well, so compare to So you're not to really debunking this myth. You're just saying like, before. we don't really know. Yeah. Um, and the, the piece, a piece of evidence they use to suggest that young people do want to enter the public sector is that there's an increase in the number of students getting degrees in public administration. But I don't know if I think that's a strong enough piece of evidence to say lots of young people want to work for the government. No, because that, um, that's, that's a bigger universe. So they, they do concede that, quote, the jury is still out on the difficulty of recruiting millennials into government jobs. So maybe once millennials are working for the government, they don't hate it and they don't leave all the time. But it is still an open question. How do you recruit them? I guess the question is, how are they recruiting millennials? And is there are their recruiting efforts any different than they were in years past? I have... I don't have any Free idea. Sushi. I don't have any idea. Bring, I'm telling you. No, bring I'm your kidding. dog to Federal Triangle. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I forgot. I mean, I knew that today was Veterans Day, but I my mind had decoupled it from the idea that, therefore, in Washington, D.C., nobody will be at work. And so I was halfway to work driving on the highway like, yeah, did the nice. zombie apocalypse happen? Like, it was pretty where nice. Where are all the people? Yeah, it was good. And then I remember it was nice out there. Oh, most I've, people aren't working today. Yeah, it was pretty good. That's, That's right. good when you when you feel when you feel like I don't. I really kind of hate driving to work, but I, I do kind of enjoy feeling the the ebbs and flows of Washington scheduling on the road. That's <laughs> vaguely interesting to me. So today, I definitely felt that there was something going on. Um, but speaking of young people who want to go into public service potentially in some way, uh, Chris and I did our first live show, which was so awesome at Georgetown Institute of Politics and public service. We talked about women's issues. We're going to play you a clip of our show and it I, we thought it was really great great conversation. But stick around for the end cuz we're going to come back and talk about man buns here in a second. Oh yes. Well, thank you all very much for coming here tonight. Well, I guess I'll start by asking you the first question then, Margie, oh, so, okay. to kick off our discussion. So the overall topic here is what are women's issues? So it seems like a pretty good question to start with. Yes. Margie, what 
issues are women's issues? Well, that's a very good question, Kristen. So, in you know, on the Democratic side, if you, you know, as a Democratic pollster and working with Democrats and talking about women's issues with a lot of Democrats, it, it'd be easy to think that women's issues are abortion or maybe to expand a little bit broadly to include birth control. Um, but it, that really is, I think, at limiting both to the women who care about a lot of other issues um, as a political strategy. I think it's limiting. Um, and I think it doesn't even always reflect what a lot of women think of when they think of women's issues and what it means for them to be a woman voting. Um, in 2012, Gallup had a poll that said, what do you think are the most important issues to women? And at the top of the list was you know, abortion because people, women were responding to the question. So, what do you think is important to women, not necessarily what's important to them, just what they think they should say about what's important to women. When you actually ask women about what's important to them, it's not that those issues are important. I, I don't mean to minimize them. They're obviously more important to women than they are to men. They are not number one. Um, they are a little bit further down the list. And in terms of what moves swing voters, when we've talked to swing voting women, it's, you know, it's higher than things like taxes. It may be disproportionately, you know, under discussed some of those women's issues in some elections compared to other issues that, that maybe women don't, um, don't prioritize as highly, but it's still not quite at the top. But what I think, when I think of a woman's issue, I think of, you know, when I hear women in focus groups like, do you get me? Do you understand what it's like to be me? Are you, you know, so, you know, are you as a politician so wrapped up in like political bickering and squabbling over nothingness, trying to score political points, talking about, you know, the, the latest, you know, news of the day that you don't really get what it's like to be a woman or a mom who is just struggling to pay student bills, student loans, you know, get keep the trains running on time in your family, take care of uh, someone, who, you know, an elderly person in your family at the same time as maybe having children, trying to make sure you're, you know, at the same time as doing all that, you're not losing ground at work, whether you work hourly or, or on, a, uh, on a salary. And for a lot of women, they see politicians as not really getting any of that whatsoever. And that those issues are really so much more than abortion uh, or birth control. Yeah, I think on the right, I mean, I've heard often the mantra that all issues are women's issues, that there's a sort of a, a desire among Republicans to push back against the narrative that issues like reproductive rights are inherently causing huge problems with them, um, with female voters, by trying to broaden what counts as a woman's issue. Um, and, you know, you can point to elections within the last 10 or 15 years. Take, for instance, the 2004 presidential elections with the phenomenon of security moms, where you had um, a group of female voters that were really activated to actually swing to the right, uh, in part because of national security issues, and they were concerned about terrorism. And so, um, you know, the idea that all issues are women's issues, I do think, um, has some importance. But I, I do agree with Margie as well that a lot of women think that their perspectives on issues all issues, but their perspectives on all issues aren't necessarily heard or aren't necessarily a big enough part of the discussion. Um, going into this election year, I think it's crystal clear at this moment that um, the Democrats and Hillary Clinton are very interested in also broadening this idea of all issues being women's issues as well. Um, and as a Republican, I worry that my side's not prepared 
to deal with that fact. Um, that the, the Republicans have become uh, have somewhat kind of tried to figure out what their response will be on issues like reproductive rights and birth control, et cetera. Um, but are now when you when you listen to Hillary Clinton talk, you know, she talks about things like equal pay. She talks about things like family leave. I don't know that these are issues that Republicans have yet figured out how to talk about or figured out what their policies are quite yet. Um, so the broadening of the bucket of what counts as women's issues I think is really going to be a kind of defining feature of this election as the way candidates try to reach women isn't just defined to the sort of biological women's issues that we think about, but are now becoming economic women's issues as well. Right. And also when you think of some of these family economics, preschool is another one too, you know, elder care, all those things are part of like household economics. And when we don't have a policy or we don't and talk about those issues as part of the national dialogue, and those are sort of women's issues that are like a checkoff at a side event, even though women make up a majority of the electorate, you know, we end up for Forcing women to sort of be out on their own, trying to figure all these things out by themselves. We don't have a national conversation. We don't have a national standard. We don't have, you know, employers that say, no, you know, when you have a kid, you get, you know, you get three months, you get four months. That's the standard. You don't have those kinds of standards. You have every woman sort of duking it out with other women kind of to figure out on their own. Like, well, I figured it out. Well, then you can figure it out. And I think the end result is that that becomes a little bit of a, it becomes a toxic issue because we don't have this as a conversation. It's seen as something that only affects women when obviously it affects men too. It affects, you know, the people who are raised by women. It affects the co-workers of women. It affects the husbands of women. It affects the brothers of women who are like, get off, you know, get out of taking care of their, you know, dad and, and mom as they age. I mean, it affects everybody. It affects employers. So when we, you know, when we sort of pretend that those issues don't matter, don't really try to have any kind of national dialogue about them, it ends up hurting all of us, you know, really collectively. So this uh, coming up, uh, this election that's coming up, clearly, I think gender is going to be a big part of the discussion because there are uh, there are strong female candidates running within both parties. It is likely at this point that there will be at least one woman who wins a major national party nomination. Um, Margie, I'm wondering what your take is on this question that I get asked a lot, and I think we've talked about it on the show before. Does the fact that there is a woman on the ballot matter to women? You know, it's it's fascinating because I think there's a couple different pieces, right? One is I hear a lot in focus groups with Democrats, with women who say, you know, I'm not going to vote for Clinton just because she's a woman. I mean, they say that we did focus groups last week for of Walmart moms and they, you know, that was been reported um, where a lot of Democratic women in Iowa said, you know, that like, I'm not going to do that just because she's a woman. And it's hard. One is, People have a social desirability to say, I vote for the person. I don't vote for the, you know, gender, ethnicity. I'm above that. I don't look at that. I look at the person. I don't look at the party because I'm independent free thinker, right? That's one thing, you're, one obstacle. They may be rounding up their desire to, to do that. They may not fully be able to report that properly. Um, I, I think, you know, the other piece is it's hard to separate Clinton, Hillary Clinton, herself from sort of gender. It's not, you know, we're not testing an abstraction here. We're not saying, how would you feel about a woman candidate, an imaginary woman candidate? Everybody knows who we're asking about when we ask that question. So it's very hard to really get a good sense of how people are, are they responding to Clinton specifically, who is, you know, a, an establishment candidate, I think, you know, she's been in Washington for a while. So, um, or, or are they, are they responding to that? Or are they responding to gender? Or are they responding to her talking? 
talking about gender? Or are they responding to the rest of the field that they don't like? You, you know, are they responding to electability? It's hard to really tease all that stuff out um, in a very clean way. Um, I think what she, you know, what's interesting is you see Clinton really talking about not just women's issues but her gender, I think more than I actually would have expected. I mean, certainly as a contrast to Carly Fiorina who talks about it really not at all unless she – is forced to. Well, there there was that one time that Carly Fiorina did this video for BuzzFeed, which was oh, about, was, you know, her sort of responding to the way that women are sometimes treated differently in the workplace. And I thought that was kind of neat because I thought it was the first time that I saw a right of center woman kind of acknowledging the, the different ways that women are sometimes treated in a professional environment without, you know, it wasn't a like, oh, we're, we're victims, but it was it was kind of treated in this like funny but sort of incisive way. And so I thought that was... It was good, but it, it seemed not characteristic for, for her. It did seem unusual. Yeah. It, was, it was surprising to see. Yeah. I, I've, I was surprised. Like, I was heartened, but, I, you know, I did think it was surprising. So to your point about focus groups and people talking about whether they'd vote for a female president and how that would influence their vote. Um, so I don't normally watch Jimmy Kimmel because I've... In old age, started to fall asleep before it's on. Um, but um, doing research, Margie and I talk a lot on this show about research methods. And on Jimmy Kimmel's show this past week, he did a focus group of, I think, kindergartners. Yeah. Um, asking them all about uh, <laughs> whether they thought that a woman should be president and what they thought would happen if there was a female president. And, of course, the little boys in the group were like, we can't have a female president. She would paint the White House pink. Like, they were just not having it. And, of course, Hillary Clinton comes out at the end of the group. Um, but I thought that was interesting, too, in contrast to... This is to, why you don't mix gender in your focus group. <laughs> keep gender separate so that... Because the little girls were, like, they were very displeased with the little boys in the focus group by the end. That was... It was fascinating to watch. Um, but it, what was what's interesting to me is that the last time around when Hillary Clinton ran for president, gender was not part yeah. of it at all. Right. And now it almost seems like, I don't want to say overcorrected, but now that seems to be the primary message of her campaign is I'm an outsider because I'm a woman. I understand issues differently because I'm a woman. It is the core of the message instead of something that last time she was setting aside. I mean, I, and I'm certain that that's a calculated and intentional move do you think it is the right one? I, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I certainly talking about women's issues broadly defined as we've sort of broadly introduced them. I think she didn't she didn't do that as much last time either. And that is clearly a, a move that I think makes a lot of sense it is, you know, clearly placed to her strength. Because remember, the Democratic primary, first of all, is disproportionately female. So that's the and the electorate is majority female. So that makes a lot of sense strategically. Um, and also she has a long uh, issue history there. In terms of talking about gender, you know, I, I mean, it, it, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't I. I'm not totally convinced that that's the right way to go. Certainly there are voters who say that that matters to me. I don't know if communicating this explicitly, you know, increases the pie, increases the share of voters who say, okay, that's why I'm voting for her. I think at the same time, what you also have, which you didn't have in 2008, is this new young interest in feminism, which was not around when I was in college. You know, you could not, you know, this was not something that people, you know, you didn't have celebrities talking about how they were feminists when I was in college. That was not a thing. That is a thing now. And I think that's a trend that I think, you know, can only help Clinton. So in focus groups that I've conducted, and this is, again, it's qualitative data, not quantitative data. Um, 
But I, when I've done focus groups of female swing voters and I bring up this question of would you be more likely to vote for a candidate based on, you know, if they're, if they're a woman, um, that the response is very based on the age of the respondent. That typically for older respondents, they're more likely to say, you know what, at this stage in my life, I would like to see a woman president. That, that would, all other things being equal, that would be a bonus for me. I'm not going to pick somebody that I like less just because they're a woman. But all things being equal, yeah, I, I would do that because I'd like to see a female president in my lifetime. Whereas the younger women typically say, I'm going to see a female president in my lifetime. Like that doesn't seem like it's in doubt at all. So it doesn't have to be Hillary Clinton. It can be somebody else. So I don't feel the need to try to make history with my vote because I have no doubt that in my lifetime I'm going to see history made. And I thought that maybe this was just me hearing things in focus groups. And there was an article that was written, I think pretty recently, maybe in The Hill, where the, the author of the article interviewed an unnamed Democratic strategist who said, you know, in my focus groups, I'm finding that actually the younger women are the more likely to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I believe I'll see a female president in my lifetime. It doesn't have to be Hillary Clinton. Um, so I was heartened to hear that another strategist on the other side of the aisle was finding the same thing. And again, while it's qualitative, not quantitative, I think that's kind of an interesting an interesting dynamic to see if, if that sort of persists in the conversation mm-hmm, through to next mm-hmm. November. Yeah, I mean, it, look, it's going to be hugely important, and I think the generational divide, you also have, you know, older women who who have a lot of clear memories of being the only woman in their law school class or the only, you know, one of few women in their college class or the only, you know, woman in management or whatever, you know, all those kinds of, you know, anachronistic experiences, well, they're, they're, they weren't anachronistic at the time, but for younger women who, you know, maybe don't have quite the same experience of uh, those kinds of challenges of the work, you know, in the workplace or, you know, getting a loan or all that kind of stuff, you know, buying a house or an apartment by yourself, buying a car by yourself, these things that we all take for granted were not very commonplace. And I, I wonder, too, if, you know, uh, so a woman and a man who were both born in 1940 who all other things being equal throughout the course of their lives would have had very different experiences as, as a result of their gender, whereas a young man and a young woman who were both born in 1990, all other things being equal, has their gender put them on such different paths and having different life experiences mm-hmm. as people two or three generations back? Well, there's also a smaller uh, pay gap for younger people than for older people, too. So for a variety of reasons, you just have fewer years, you know, you haven't taken time out for child rearing, you know, you have, nobody's salaries are high enough yet. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons, but so you don't have that same kind of experience. So I think as we sort of wrap up and move into taking questions from the audience, I guess the last question that I would love for us to talk about is um, the ways that people can reach women. So, you know, we've talked about what women's issues are, um, but I want to talk about the ways that campaigns communicate with women about those issues. Um, that in the past, a, a lot of efforts when they do their like women's outreach, um, I, I joke that it's they, they just sort of like turn the logo pink and then that's their women's outreach. Right, was like, it shrink it and pink it? Shrink it, it and pink it. Um, so I always tell this story about how the NFL uh, discovered that that's actually not the way to reach women, that they were trying to sell like pink Tom Brady jerseys and nobody was buying the pink glittery Tom Brady jerseys that, but they did figure out if you make a Jersey that just looks like a normal Jersey, but you cut it a little bit different because women don't necessarily want to wear the big baggy thing. 
that that was actually the better way to reach them. Like you meet their needs, but you don't make it pink. Um, and I think that that's actually a really valuable lesson for folks in politics who, if you're a guy running for office and you're used to talking to guys, and particularly on the Republican side, if you're used to talking to Republican guys and you suddenly want to reach swing women, there's this tendency to like, okay, I'll make my logo pink and I'll have my wife go out and talk to this women's group and like that solves the problem. Um, and I think what I've seen in a lot of my research and what I'm, you know, I know Marjorie's seen as well is that women just want to know that you understand what's going on in their lives. You know, not, it's not about the pink logo. It's just about demonstrating that you get what their life is like, even if it's very different from yours, um, that you just have to start at that kind of basic level. So that was a clip from our first live show at the Georgetown Institute of Politics and Public Service. Thanks so much for Mo and everybody else who invited us and for all the great questions we had from the audience. So last but not least, our fun topic of the week, uh, we're going to talk about haircuts. Um, And this is a little personal for me. Tomorrow I'm going to go and probably get a couple inches cut off my hair. This is an emotional thing. I've had long hair for a little while. I actually told my hairdresser when I first started going to her that one day, One day, Mimi, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to tell you to cut like four or five inches off my hair and I need you to not do it. So we're about to see if she (laughs) – can I persuade her? Like, no, no, no. I'm coming from the the future. (laughs) Don't let me do it. The thing thing that you can remember is that even, you know, even a bad haircut is a temporary – even if it doesn't feel quite temporary. Oh, no. Heaven knows I've had some bad haircuts and – Blessedly, I have moved on from them. Yeah, and but you the know, photos never die. That's much. true. I know. <laughs> the photos that's are true. still there. But you know, someone else told me, or I, I, maybe I read this, that if you get a bad haircut, rather than sort of leave and freak out, you should go back and have somebody, maybe not the same person, cut a little more, fix it. That maybe there's a way to do a little bit more cutting that can fix it. Tweak it. Yeah. That's... As opposed to just sort of hide your head in shame and <laughs> hope it hope it grows out soon. So of course, so this led to me googling things like. Polling on haircuts. Polling on man buns. Take that, Jill Lepore. Take that, Jill Lepore. <laughs> um, and what I found, you know, we love talking about weird historic poll findings on this show. And so in 1971, George Gallup wrote a piece where he studied attitudes about hair from male college students. Now, this is male college students talking about men's haircuts. This is not men on women's haircuts. In we the will, 70s. We will get to that in a second. This is this is young men talking about what haircuts they prefer on themselves in the ni- in the early 1970s. And the winner is what they call long hair, but I'm looking at these cartoons that they've got drawn here and they it's long, we're not talking like long long. We're talking like it's not cut super close to the head. Like, it's more like the Bieber, the Justin Bieber yes, swoop. Right. Or... So wait, now, is that long... Oh, I, these, these, long, I, but not over the ears. Right. I mean, it, basically, they're defining long as, like, longer than an inch. Yes, with sideburn, like little lamb chops. Yeah, it's... That's... And then they have um, over ear. That guy, he's, he kind of looks like a... Richard Branson. He looks just like <laughs> Richard Branson. That's exactly who it is. Um, so apparently back then, 45% of young men said they wanted short and traditional hair. 23% had the like the long, not over ear, vintage Bieber swoop. Um, the I think is that 29% say they wanted the over the ear Richard Branson look. Um, and then you had to the shoulder, you had 7% who um, it says, while long hairs predominate, only one male student in 14 currently wears hairstyle, their hair to the shoulder, quote, hippie style. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, no, we're going to link to this because this is pretty pretty darn funny. And this is in, from a, a Gallup college survey. So. And, and then the Daily Mail in 2008. So then I was trying to see, well, what do men think about women's haircuts? And uh, the Daily Mail, which I know. I know, I know. Not considered a strong I know. source of survey uh, <laughs> data, but a very good source of fun data. Right. So they asked um, uh, they asked men what hairstyle they like best on women. And men like longer hair. 43% said they liked long and wavy. 13% said long and straight. But I have to say, it takes a long time to blow dry long hair. This is part of, like, I'm about to reclaim 20 minutes a yeah. day. That's a lot of time per week. That's yeah. a lot of time per year. Yeah, you could like well, you could learn a language. I'm. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to learn how to play the guitar <laughs> with my. Every morning, I'm going to spend 15 minutes practicing the guitar instead of blow drying my hair. Yes. Um. But I, I take some quibbles methodologically with this poll because we always have to bring it back to methodology and survey sampling and things. So the way the poll was framed, um, you know, long and wavy, long and straight, classic bob, pixie crop, long bob, bowl cut. How many guys know what any of those things are? Yeah. First of all. Like, what the heck? If I asked my husband to pick a classic bob versus a long bob. Versus a pixie crop. Out of a lineup, he probably couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, And then bowl cut, they show a picture of what they're counting as a bowl cut. And it's this picture of Katie Holmes' haircut that was kind of when she had the, like, the really short. Like, I don't call that a bowl cut. I remember guys in the eighth grade having bowl cuts where you literally, it was like they put a bowl on your head and they cut around it. I don't. Katie Holmes' hair wasn't a bowl cut. And I like that there's a beehive on there, which I think and is four percent of men picked it. I think that's solely Amy Winehouse, the Amy Winehouse effect, because this is a UK poll. I'm assuming that that's what this is. I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and then, it's from 2008. Anyway, I also just watched the Amy Winehouse because uh, I was sick last week, and so that was yeah. 2008 the, was like peak Amy Winehouse, and so I watched the. Amy Winehouse. Ah, was it good? Should I watch it? It's fantastic. Okay. But if you're a, f- a super fan like I am, then it's it's incredible. Okay. So, um, but anyway, I'm assuming that that's why, that's why Beehive is on here. Okay. That makes sense. Because otherwise, it doesn't March, make any March sense. Simpson? March Simpson. Yeah, it's March Simpson or Amy Winehouse. That's it. That's um, all then there was some non-scientific polling that I was looking at to try to set my nerves at ease. So Harper's, Harper's Bazaar, um, about a year ago, did a whole post where they had pictures of celebrities where on one side their hair is short and on one side their hair is long. And then they have people vote. Do you like the short or the long hair? And it was not consistent. It wasn't like voters were all picking long or all picking short. Britney Spears, for instance, they had a picture of her with short and with long hair. And uh Three quarters picked Britney with longer hair. Mm. Um, same with Kristen Wiig. People preferred Kristen Wiig with longer hair. But then I felt really good because for Emily Blunt, the picture of her with short hair is the picture I had already printed out at my house that I was going to take oh, to the hairdresser. That's good. And so I was like, oh, this is perfect. That's nice. Emily Blunt with long hair, kind of like I have now, with what I'm literally going to walk into the hairdresser with. Yeah. And the short haircut won 79 to 21. That's good. That's According good. to Harper's Bizarre Readers, which is like a fashionable... That's good. Fashionable set of ladies online. You know, it's not the first time that women prefer something slightly different than what men prefer when evaluating women's looks, which is totally not the subject of this podcast. But interesting phenomenon in and of itself that if you look at body types and body size, men will always or typically prefer something a little bit bigger than what women prefer themselves. So I don't know how this relates to hair per se, but it's a phenomenon that is not – this is not the first time I've seen that. Yep. I've, I've definitely heard of the phenomenon when it comes to, like, attire. Like, are you dressing for men or dressing for women and whether that's a thing or not. I wonder 
there's got to be polling out there about that. Oh yes. Um, but then we t- then this of course then led to you promised me man buns. Man buns. Um, so <laughs> there was a uh, a poll conducted. Um, I, it was cited in C- in GQ, but I don't think GQ conducted it. Oh, sponsored by something called West Coast Shaving. So methodology alert. We have no idea. <laughs> No idea. Um, But they report that 63% of American women either dislike or outright hate the man bun. Um, And that a full 58% say they wouldn't date a guy who wore his hair in a bun. Um, And then they have this interesting infographic that it it also takes Google Trends data to figure out what part of the country are people most interested in certain styles. So apparently beards... The top states for beards, Kentucky, Arkansas, and West Virginia. Okay, good. Um, So this all kind of makes, like, when you look at the map, you're like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. That's good. Um, And there was a big spike in interest in beards around 2014 Hmm. that has slightly fallen off. Okay. Um, Then mustaches, top states for mustaches, Utah and California. I don't, would not have called that. Don't know. Um, And then if you look at the trend line over time of Google search trends, there's this weird spike in every year. And it looks to me, to my eye, like that spike happens every November. Have you ever heard of Movember? No. It's a thing where guys who don't normally have mustaches like grow out a mustache. Is for that the a month thing? of November. That's it's a thing. a thing. It's actually a thing. And I think some people do it for charity. They're like, I'm going to not shave my face for November. And then at the end, I'll shave my face. So give money to charity. I, I don't quite understand how it works, clearly. But Movember <laughs> is a thing. And so last so but not So it's not least, just like going home for the holidays and just like letting it hang out and there was that too, right? That phenomenon. Like, I'm just not going to shave because I'm going to visit my parents and, like, you know. Yeah, but gonna... this is November. This is like you're preparing for holiday parties or re- like school reunions. Right. Like, this it's is cold not... out. Yeah. Your face I don't know. needs a little extra warmth. Um, so then the man bun, top states for searches on man buns Oklahoma, Utah, and Kentucky. Interesting. DC comes in at number six. No way. So maybe it is Tacoma Park. Yay. <laughs> pushing Yay, the pushing Washington. the man bun into the into and the, the arena. The trend line on searches for man bun, like no one had searched for the term man bun before twenty fifteen. So Wow. This is a truly modern phenomenon. This is like it really, really useful social media monitoring here. I know. This is uh it's the future of polling, the future of polling. So here you go. On a scale, uh what is the first adjective you think of when you see a guy wearing a beard in this survey? Um, the top five responses from women, manly, sexy, rugged, hairy, and scratchy. Okay. And then what is the first adjective you think of when you see a guy wearing a man bun? Feminine, trendy, weird, sexy, and hot. <laughs> Sounds a little polarizing. So there you go. Polling on man buns. You're welcome, America. Excellent. Excellent. That is news you can use for sure. So key findings. Voters say they wanted a serious debate, and it looks like they got one. But not sure we'll see big movements in the top tier no matter what Carson bombshell drops in the next couple of hours. Uh, and as the pollsters, we, of course, think polls are useful, especially if they're about man buns. But it's up to us as the industry to make sure we're helping people vet good polling from bad. Uh, we loved going to Georgetown. Thank you, Georgetown. And we want to see more women's issues uh, be more inclusive. So not just abortion or birth control, not just for women and not just for Democrats. Uh, long hair is a pain. Take it from us. Polls show many like 
like it in theory, but maybe not necessarily in practice. So you're going to have to follow Kristen on Instagram or watch, <laughs> see how this actually evolves because we can't, even the best podcast in the world can't actually demonstrate a haircut. So you're going to have to see how that how that evolves. <laughs> and don't forget your 60-second assignment. Write a review for the pollsters on Stitcher. You guys are podcast hipsters. We're counting on you. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters. You can find Margie at, at Margie O'Mero. I'm at K. Soltis Anderson. We're on Facebook where throughout the week we'll post links to polls that we find that we think our listeners would love. Again, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher, and make sure you write those reviews. We love to hear from you. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Thanks. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip-hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.